Well, welcome back to another episode, and this is going to be released in January. So happy 2023, everyone. Yeah, from the past, the future, we're speaking to you in the future. Yeah, this is Jen and Dan from a year ago. So there's we're... time travel going on here for sure. We're, we're recording, we're recording right. between in that little liminal period between Christmas yeah. and New Year's. <laughs> So we're squeezing in a recording because we have, it's, it's a different topic in terms of it's still to do with dogs and the whole facts of feeding your dogs. It's just, we're going to tackle it in a little different way because Dan, as most of you know, is very multi-passionate. I mean, we've talked about your book, Dan, <laughs> we've talked about your, you basically, you started a company because you were so passionate about it for dog food. And here we are with another one of your, your initiatives, which is so great because I think we do truly need people out there pounding the pavement, trying to get people to listen in terms of we can make a difference. It just needs a lot of people together working together. So here we are. We're formally introducing Pet Food Consumer Rights Council, also yep. known as PCRC, and it's your nonprofit. So let's yep. talk about it. Absolutely. <laughs> let's dive in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, basically what I want to do with this episode is just help everybody understand what the PCRC is, what our goals for it are going mm -hmm. forward, why we think it's an important thing, an important part of the conversation about improving the state of pet ownership in America today, and uh, answer some kind of common questions and criticisms and concerns that we've received in the early days about it. Um, but yeah, and I guess, honestly, a huge part of this episode is not just like introducing this concept, but it's making a plea. If you're listening to this, I believe, and I hope I can persuade you that this is an organization whose success you should care about big time. This thing has the capacity to do really, really positive things for you and your pet, but also for the broader pet owning public and the pets, the millions, tens of millions of the pets that those people are responsible for. And so I hope because the website is live now, it's functioning. We're building our membership roles right now. My hope is that some people listening to this will feel persuaded enough by all this that you'll consider joining or donating some money. You can we'll explain the difference there, what it means to be a member of the PCRC. But we'd encourage you to go to our website, PetFoodConsumerRightsCouncil.org, learn more, and consider making a donation one time standalone or joining as a member. We cannot, the thing is, we think it's set up really smartly and in a good way, but ultimately it only succeeds if we have active participation from our constituency. Yeah. And then, like you said, this is fresh off the presses, right? Like you yeah. just launched this as it's, it's, I think it's always so, so exciting, like right in those early days of like getting it out there. Cause it sounds like you had been working on this for a while and yeah. you know, it's kind of like, where did this come from and you know, why does it exist in your mind? Yep. So um, basically the like conundrum that got me interested in doing this is the same one that motivates a lot of the work that I do. Um, and it's this, like people in the United States that own pets have never 
in history had more resources at their disposal to improve the health of those animals. There have never been more vets in the U.S. The sophistication of veterinary care has never been better. We have never spent more money on our pets, both in terms of veterinary care and in terms of products and services. All that, like if you go, if you run in the most boring professional circle in the world, which is like the pet food industry, um, one thing you hear very often is about the phenomenon of the humanization of pets. And what that term means is basically the uh, tendency of pet owners to not treat their companion animals like animals and instead to treat them like human members of the family, to make decisions for them just like we do for other family members, notably children. And that's like a broadly accepted concept. It's clear in every way you look at the data concerning pet ownership, but it, it like leads to a paradox, which is that despite the humanization of pets, despite all the money we're putting towards their health and welfare, they have never ever in history been less healthy. That doesn't make any sense. Those two things should go together Otherwise, you've got a broken system. Something is wrong that needs to be changed. If you're putting more money and more time and more care into something, you expect to get better outcomes. But mm -hmm. we're not getting better outcomes. We're getting the worst outcomes we've ever gotten. Chronic diseases, notably those linked to nutrition, have never been more common, more deadly, rising faster rates. Any way you slice it, all these things from obesity to diabetes to cancer to arthritis, these chronic diseases that aren't spread by way of contagion, but are instead just things that uh, develop over time through environmental factors like nutrition have never been worse. They are, they're insanely common. And that shouldn't be the case given how much money we're all putting towards this. We should be seeing every year, the lifespan of pets is going up, incidence rate of obesity is going down. Otherwise you've got a problem. You've got something wrong and you got to try to fix it. And so this is another attempt to try to move things in a positive direction, try to shake things up, change the nature of pet ownership to try to make this better. Yeah, it's, it is a compelling reason. Like you said, it's the core, it's at the heart of everything that you've accomplished in this world. And when you were talking, it's like, well, yes, but part the foundation of it is like the research behind everything of like why these dogs are not living as long, why the rampant, you know, increasing rate of, like you said, all these diseases is can you kind of explain and go into that more of like the the problem and the reality, right? Yeah. Of this pet this research with it within the pet food industry. Like how is that all working and why that why that is such a big issue? Yeah. So one of my strong beliefs about why we've got this paradox, one of the like solutions to the paradox, in my view, is that essentially what the scientific community is telling veterinarians and the lay public about new uh, developments in the science of pet nutrition is too significantly biased in favor of pet, the pet food industry. That essentially the pet food industry can control to too significant of a degree what issues are studied, what new, what new science is put out there, what the community learns uh, about diseases over time, how that like knowledge base builds. Um, there's just like, essentially the problem is that 
in the world of nutritional science, veterinary nutritional science, there is no money outside of industry. If mm -hmm. you are a person who wants to be a professional veterinary nutrition scientist for your job, you are not going to succeed as a professional unless you can establish good, dependable sources of funding. Like that's, that's sort of how, what it means to be a practicing scientist these days. Somebody has got to pay you to do your work. You're mm. not doing it for individuals. Like, you know, if you're a scientist studying pet food, you don't go, Hey, Jen, what do you think I should study? And you go, well, I, you know, I think you should study uh, unique issues to dogs in Illinois. And they go, Oh, that's a great idea. I'll just go do that. It's like, no, you need money to do, to perform all the work you're, you're going to perform. You're not selling it. You need right. somebody to fund it. Mm -hmm. And unlike in most domains of like human research, human focused health research, there aren't the kinds of public sources of funding that propel a lot of the research community in the human domain. That stuff doesn't exist to the same degree. Something like the National Institutes of Health, which provides billions of dollars in research funding right. for human mm -hmm. health initiatives, doesn't exist in the pet, in the doggy and kitty world. What exists is a huge amount of funding and influence from industry. Industry, wh whether you're like a legacy big kibble fan or whether you're a fan of startup counter new, you know, grain free, challenging, right. mm -hmm. grain, you know, cutting edge stuff, whatever, whatever your little corner of the world is, you need something. There's no one. You will not find anyone who is a successful veterinary nutrition scientist in America today who doesn't have a dependable industry source of funding. And that's a problem. And mm -hmm. it's, it's the, the problem is so obvious that I probably don't even need to explain it. But what, what that means is that like if you are interested or if, if it becomes clear to you that what needs to be studied is some issue that is potentially bad for those companies, you're not going to get support for it, okay? And the analogy here that I think is the most apt one to make is to cigarettes and lung cancer. Imagine, if you will, what it would look like if the only way for the scientists studying the impacts of smoking on cancer risk, if the only way they could get funding was from cigarette companies. Like, you're not doing that research. Not It's not happening. Mm. Your bottom line yeah. is selling cigarettes. You're not giving your money to a scientist who could put out a study that's going to say selling cigarettes yeah. is killing people. That doesn't happen. And yeah. so that's a problem because it means that some of the issues that we should care about aren't going to get any money. What do you do about that? Okay. One of the things you could do is you could try to work through government. You can say, okay, we're going to try to create, get persuade our representatives at government to create the National Institutes of Companion Animal Health. And mm -hmm. we're going to set, we're going to put taxpayer money towards that and go through it that way. No one's done it. It's a, it's a challenge. Maybe someday it'll happen. Ooh, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Another way is what we're trying to do with the Pet Food Consumer Rights Council. And what we're trying to do is this. We recognize that there's no individual, there are very few individuals that are listening to this today or that might ever listen to it in the future who have enough money to, on their own, rival the kind of financial influence that a big company can exert, right? Nobody here is, uh, you know, the same size, same financial clout 
as like Colgate Palm Olive. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But if we aggregate what we all can do individually, we can rival them. Okay. So mm. the idea here is this is an organization that takes from its, uh, that, that is composed of individual pet owners. Our members are individual pet owners. And basically our sole function is to solicit donations from those people and those people only individual pet owners only compile that money into an aggregate pool and then use it to provide funding for studies, scientific work that is that has trouble getting funding in the existing reg regime. You know, there's mm -hmm. something like more than 100 million dog or cat owners in the United States today. If each one of them gave $100 to this organization, you would be talking about an organization that has $10 billion behind it and would far outstrip the amount of financial clout that all of the pet food industry together is presently doing to fund mm -hmm. scientific research. So it's there. If we can get enough members, we can do, we can make a huge positive impact. And so a big part of what I'm trying to do today is explain why it's so important. If you care about progress in the pet food industry, it's so important that you consider joining this organization, becoming a member, which is super cheap, it's $10 a month, or making an individual donation to it. Mm -hmm. So look, I don't want to be a member, but I do support it. I'll give some money to it. Um, and that's basically the at the at the heart of it. That's what this thing is designed to do. Aggregate donations mm -hmm. from individual pet owners and use them to provide grants for scientific research that can't get funding in the existing regime on issues that our membership, real pet owners actually care about, not industry. <laughs> Yeah, it's like a, a very like deep level involvement from a membership perspective in a good way. Like you're literally creating the framework and the initiatives for PCRC of like, you know what, we're going to vote on where the grants go, what kind of scientific research we want to push yep. versus uh, like we'll get into it versus a very small group of very... Um, you know, could be corporations. It could, like you said, these these dog food corporations getting involved and then having voting power per se with their dollars of pushing the agenda one way or the other. Of like, let's focus on this, or I don't like this. <laughs> Just having possibly involvement that way. But I, I I love the framework of that because would you say that dog food companies are in some way involved with most scientific research at this point? Like you Absolutely. said, Absolutely. Like, yeah, no, it's the only source yeah. of funding. Oh it's God. the only source of funding. So if you want to believe that mm -hmm. That, that like the community, the scientific community is doing a reasonably good job of studying the issues that matter to pet owners. Mm -hmm. What you have to essentially believe is that industry is doing a good job of allocating its money towards issues that matter to pet owners, whether or not that's mm -hmm. um, good for that company from a profit driven perspective. And I got, and I would submit to you that that's not happening. There's just mm. a 0% likelihood that that is happening. Wow. Um, and so you know, this is all like us saying, okay, this is what we want the organization to do is like all well and good. Mm -hmm. I could imagine if you're a skeptical listener, if you're sure. approaching this with your skeptical ear, you might be saying, well, look, this, what you're describing is a nice concept, Dan. And in conceptual terms, I'm on board with you, but here's the problem. You're a effing pet food industry guy. What <laughs> right do you have 
to say you can create a pet food consumer rights organization as somebody that's from the pet food industry. And so that is a totally valid concern. That is a totally valid criticism. I presume it's the one I would raise if I was on the other side of this microphone. And so it's really important for us to try to explain to people why the way we've created this thing is designed to not let somebody like me, even though I'm founding the organization, have any degree of significant outsized control over it. Why I'm just another member once this baby is off the ground. Mm. Um, and yeah, so in order to do that, we're going to highlight, I think the way to do this is mm-hmm. highlight basically the most well-known animal welfare nonprofit, like source of grant funding that exists in the United States today, one of the most well-known and recognizable ones, and talk about how that we built the PCR different, PCRC different from this organ, that organization in two key ways. And they're both designed to limit the ability of people like me and Keto Natural Pet Foods and anybody else that has a for-profit motive from Mm -hmm. exerting influence and controlling this organization. Because there are kind of two separate things that we're doing, and we're going to talk through how each of them prevents me from doing anything like that. They basically are why I don't think you should be concerned about this criticism at the end of the day. And one is about where the funding comes from and the rules that are baked into the bylaws of the company about funding and how that looks different from a very popular existing uh, animal welfare nonprofit Mm -hmm. and how it's governed. Who are the board and executives? How do we choose them? And how is that different from the most popular animal welfare organization Mm -hmm. today? Because both of them are really different. They're the things that make the organization revolutionary, frankly. And um, I think they help. They're the answers to your concerns about like, wait a second, this doesn't make sense. This dude's a pet food industry guy. How can he make a consumer organization? Yeah. And I think it's really good educational moment for like, I didn't really understand how some nonprofits were structured behind the scenes in terms of the, the black and white facts. So I think as we go through this, this is a really good educational moment for, I think a lot of people, no matter who you're getting involved with, who you're donating to or whatever, just kind of learning the logistics of how to (laughs) kind of just like we do with our label reviews, like we're, we're instead of a, a, dog food you know bag that we're looking at we're looking at a nonprofit. so just think of it like yeah that's a fair way to say it it's like we're looking at the publicly available information yeah. about something this is not dan and jen do a deep right. investigative expose <laughs> about the morris animal foundation and reveal the secrets of it this is all like the stuff we're going to highlight here is just some really simple publicly available facts that reveal that show you why they're despite like whether or not they're exclusively focusing on issues that matter to their constituency and their donors, or whether they've got some other agenda that impacts things right. as well. Mm-hmm. We're not going to go into that, but we are going to highlight why there are conflicts, conflicts of interest on both the financial and the governance levels with regard to Morris, that if you don't like, we're basically thinking, okay, we can't have those kind of loopholes in our organization or those same conflicts are going to exist. And we got to build this in a way where those conflicts don't exist or else it's not going to, it's too easy to co-opt it. 
yeah, you, you kind of need something to compare and contrast to, to kind of say yeah. like, well, what yeah. is the best interest for the, <laughs> the the consumers? Like you said, like that's kind of top of mind here. And um, yeah, so you quickly mentioned it. So the actual organization, which we'll be talking about is the Morris Animal Foundation. So yep. um, like, we, like Dan said, every information that we got or we obtained was absolutely available public facing on the website or through quick Google searches. <laughs> so yeah, nothing again, crazy. Not, there's no like, <laughs> we're not oh, taking through anybody's trash. <laughs> right. Good way to put it. Do you have their website? Pull up yeah, their website. Let's, let's for anybody that's first... listening, that's not familiar. Totally. Morris animal foundation is one of the most storied, like longest living yeah. and recognizable animal welfare nonprofits in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not conversant in the individual projects that they've funded over the years, but they are numerous. They've done all kinds of stuff. Their main focus is providing funding for nutritional science work. That's kind of the core thing that they mm -hmm. do conceptually. Absolutely. However, there are some important things that are relevant about if you're trying to make a decision, do I want to put, give money to this organization or not? There are some things that you might want to consider as part of your understanding of, of who they are before you decide to decide to write them a check. So um, the, the key thing, like just to highlight that sometimes flies under the radar, depending on who you ask about Morris, is that the founder of the Morris Animal Foundation, Mark Morris himself, is a veterinarian. Okay, this guy founded this nonprofit. That's great. But he also founded a company, and the company is called Hills Pet Nutrition today. It mm -hmm. changed names and changed ownership over time. But basically, Morris was created by the founder of Hills Pet Nutrition, which in and of itself, okay, that I, I, I maybe if I'm listening to this, that raises some degree of skepticism, cynic, cynic cynicism mm -hmm. um, about it. Yeah. But at the, at the same time, I'm the founder of the Pet Food Consumer Rights Council. I run a nonprofit so, or I founded a nonprofit. So at that level, they're they're totally analogous. Sure. Mm -hmm. But if you go into if you if you run a nonprofit, if you are a nonprofit in the United States, you need to make a certain amount of your your governance and funding information available to the public. Our laws make it so that um, if you're doing that kind of work, you got to tell people some mm -hmm. official stuff about who you are so that they can decide whether they want to back you or not. And so the two things, again, to focus on with regard to this, try to understand to what degree conflicts of interest exist for any um, organization like this are one, financial side and two, governance side. And so we'll highlight just a few things, just key like surface level things about Morris that help you understand the degree to which there are yeah. conflicts that, that exist with regard to it. So first of all, there's governance. OK. And so at what I mean by governance is like, who is this organization? Who's making the yeah. decisions for an organization like this? And basically, 101 law school <laughs> uh, introduction to nonprofit governance in the United States you have a board. It's actually a board of trustees in the world of uh, nonprofits as opposed to board of directors in the world of for-profit companies. But this is an elected group of people who meet in order to make the highest level decisions for the organization. Who is going to be the key staff operating on a day-to-day -day basis? Who's going to mm -hmm. be the CEO of your organization? What's your gonna, agenda going to be year to year? What are you going to focus your work on? 
but how are you going to operate? All that kind of stuff comes from your board. Okay. Mm -hmm. And you have to tell the public who's on your board. That's one of the things you have to tell them. And what you can see when you look at the board of the board of trustees roster for Morris is that there are three different individuals there that with just a quick LinkedIn search, you can see that they're affiliated with Hills Pet Nutrition. You have two people who are family members of Mark Morris, the founder of Hills, the highest level guy from Hills, family members that are on the board. And then you've got someone who is, what's the title? Somebody is like professional responsibility. Direct, director. Yeah, director of professional education. Director mm -hmm. of professional education for Hills Pet Nutrition, also mm -hmm. on the board. Okay, those are people that regardless of what they're actually doing, there is the appearance of conflicts of interest. They have some degree of interest in Hills Pet Nutrition. And whether that clouds their work with Morris is beyond the scope of this, but it presents the possibility of it. Mm -hmm. The second thing about the governance of the Morris Animal Foundation that we think we needed to do differently in our case with the PCRC is that the board is elected by the existing board. Okay. So like if the board is going to have turnover and you're going to say, we want these three people off the board, your money that you give to Morris doesn't have to change that in any kind of way, because you don't get a right. You don't have any aspect of choosing who's sitting on the board, the board itself, according to the organization's bylaws decides who's going to be on the board next year. They vote basically. So if the board doesn't want change, the board doesn't have to change. Okay. We think that that's not that's not really like think about it in terms of government. Like mm -hmm. that would be a democracy where the president gets to choose the next president. Congress gets to choose the next Congress instead of individual voters. So that is another way in which like, OK, again, whether or not they're maybe the directors of Morris are choosing the next year's directors always without acknowledging their conflicts of interest at all, maybe mm -hmm. or maybe their conflicts of interest do play into it. But we think a better system takes that possibility off the table altogether and make and should be. So the directors are chosen by members. And that's surprisingly uncommon in the world of nonprofits in the United States today. Mm -hmm. And for that reason, it's more there's sometimes more than meets the eye towards these organizations that like if you want to change what any organization is working on and you're one of their donors, you often don't have the extent of your power is whether you want to give them money or not. You don't have a direct say, a vote in who gets to play a role. Okay? Right. So those are the two things about Morris's governance. You have people with clear financial conflicts of interest on the board. And then two, you don't have a, a, a mechanism for the members that support Morris to choose who their directors are going to be right. because they're chosen by the directors themselves. Now, that's only one of two ways that very powerful people and companies can influence the operation of nonprofits. That's through the governance. Mm -hmm. The second way is, I, I would risk, is the more common way in the world today, which is through financial means. Mm -hmm. That makes you particularly influential. You can be particularly influential if you are a for-profit company. Most for-profit companies wind up being richer than individual people. They do millions, tens of millions, billions, tens of billions of dollars of business every year. And so they've got a lot more money at their disposal in many cases than most of us normal folks. And so 
What that means is that you can have a lot of power and leverage over these organizations. If your organization exists solely, if its only way of, of bringing in revenue is by getting donations and you've got a huge chunk of your donations coming from one single source, and it doesn't matter if they're on the board. They can just say, look, you got to put people on the board that we like or else we're not giving you any more money next year. And then you're in a, a real crisis situation. You can't, if you're beholden to them and they say, we're pulling our money, you're put, you're saying, look, I'm willing to do that because I think you're either being a white knight and saying, we're not going to have as much money in this organization as we did last year. Right. Um, you know, we're going to have half as much, a third right. of this year. We're going to have to fire three quarters of our people. Mm -hmm. Or, okay, we'll do it and we'll put the people you want. We're going to satisfy the conditions that you say attached to it. Right. And so, um, and basically that kind of thing is in place with Morris as well. Um, again, if you're a nonprofit operating in the U.S., you've got to make certain um, like financial information available to the public so that they can understand this stuff. And in Morris's case, of course, they did. Um, what you don't have to do under U.S. law, if you're what's called a 501c non nonprofit, you don't have to identify by name who your donors are. Okay? So surprising. I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, you think I think there's a pretty strong case to be made that that would be a good rule. You can imagine there are some privacy interests too. Maybe uh, sure. there are reasons why you don't want um, every donor to be able to be identified. Mm -hmm. But certainly some costs of doing things that way. Sure. And so in Morris's case, they do not disclose who their donors are. But what you do have to do and what Morris does mm -hmm. is if you uh, receive more than $5,000 from any one donor, you've got to at least like list how much they gave and what kind of giving they, they basically did. You've got there's an element of their tax return every year that says like blank, no name actually, gave us $5,000 on this date and contributed to our revenue. Um, and so you could pull up their annual tax filings and you can look at this stuff. Mm -hmm. And in the case of Morris, basically the company brought in a little more than 12 million bucks last year that they filed 21, the last year that they filed their tax return. And according to their disclosures, just seven people or organizations, you don't, we don't know through the, you know, there's no identity attached to them. So we don't, right. know, we don't know if it's a name or a company, but those seven individuals each gave more than $300,000 and collectively provide about half of the comp of the organization's annual revenue. So if you take those seven people's donations away, those set, just those seven, then the company's revenue is slashed by half. It goes from 12 million something to 6 million. Okay. Mm -hmm. The organization's stuff goes away. And those, so what I'm trying to say is that those seven unnamed individuals, companies, all of which are wealthy enough to give at least $300,000 at a pop. So we're not talking about Joe Schmo. Mm -hmm. Those folks can just with very, very like high degree of confidence say, we'll give you money, but you've got to make sure you do this. You don't do that, that kind of thing. They have a huge amount of influence, whether or not they're actually on the board or not. And so that's another way that like you can disproportionately be influenced by a small number of really mm -hmm. rich people and companies if you run a nonprofit.
Um, yeah. And so again, that's just like, we, we use those two, like use Morris as an example to show you how there are loopholes in how nonprofits are commonly set up. That's about the as significant a nonprofit as there is in the animal mm -hmm. welfare world. And how we think we got to solve those two things. If, if the PCRC is actually going to serve its mission, a mission of faithfully representing pet owners, we've got to solve those two things. And so we like to think, and this is why it kind of took so much time, it, we've set it up using legal structure in a way that prevents those two things from occurring. We're never going to have a situation with PCRC like those two that I just highlighted with Morris. Um, because our financial and governance rules are different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I was just typing in, you probably heard the click clacking of my keys, but I was typing in what it, what percentage of 300,000 is out of 12 million. And even that alone is 2.5%. I mean, Huge. so by one donation, in essence, you have a voice of 2.5% of that company. And that's, that's astounding to me. You know, so yeah, I mean, it's like if there's seven <laughs> totally benevolent people that are mm -hmm. really, then it's like even then they move large, they still exert a huge amount of influence. Yeah. If there's mm -hmm. seven related organizations that are moving in lockstep in any kind of way, they are the organization. Right. Like, again, think about it in terms of like a, gov a, 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 a public government system, you know, like mm. if half of government's money came from seven individuals, mm -hmm. those seven individuals are able to influence the impact of government to a huge degree. It's just like, it's unacceptable. Um, yeah, totally. And, and really like what I'm, I'm hearing from you, and I guess, correct me if I'm wrong, but like, you're really trying to break the cycle of all these organizations typically are set up this way. Like, here's one example of this and that, like, I'm I put like a lot of thought into the structure of it, you know, cause I think a lot of people, like when I think about nonprofits to support, I, I guess I rarely think about the structure of it. I'm like, yeah. so how, who, you know, is there a board of directors? Like I didn't, you're reverse engineering it to the point of like, think about the structure first and here's how we have it set up. Yeah. Now let's think about the goals and the mission and all of that. So it, it is, a very fascinating such a upside down pyramid. <laughs> no, it's such a good point because it's a, such a hard exercise. Like think about, there are two things I'd kind of like use as examples to tease that out a little further. You know, one is that my belief always when it comes to whether it's a tobacco company or a kibble company, that you don't start those things by going, in most cases, we're going to make right. an unhealthy product and hurt a bunch of people. Right. Ha, 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 we're going to do it. That's not how it goes. You start off making something you don't realize is unhealthy. You make it because it makes people want to buy it. And great, yeah. it's people want to buy it, so we're going to make it. And we're going to make money doing it, but we're going to give people what they want. Great. And then later, it becomes clear through scientific research that, oops, the thing you're making is causing harm. Well, at that point, you're like so invested. The, like, the nature of the, the structure right. of the thing is such that you can't. Just be like, throw up your hands. Okay, we're going to stop doing this. You've got obligations in the case of companies to your shareholders. You can get sued if you start, if you go, oops, turns out, look, there's some degree of evidence that cigarettes cause lung cancer. We're just going to stop making cigarettes. You're going to get sued personally by your shareholders. Mm -hmm. Okay. So a for-profit company is not a great vehicle for being reactive to new developments in the scientific literature for that reason. It's not structured in that way. 
On the other hand, the other kind of example to think about is that the good folks who founded the United States of America and other kinds of like good, well-functioning, reasonably well-functioning democracies tried their very best to think with foresight when they're setting it up about, okay, what are the potential ways this could get co-opted? How can we make it so that this thing, no matter what issues come up over the next hundreds, thousands of years, this organization of ours is going to be reactive to the will of the people instead of just being, uh, you know, wed to some particular perspective. And so the framers of the United States Constitution did a lot of that kind of forward thinking exercise, tried to say, all right, what are the potential ways this can get corrupted? How can we build a system that's designed to minimize that stuff? And they certainly didn't create a perfect one, but it's been reasonably successful. Uh And so doing that forward front end work and leveraging the work that others have done before you, standing on the shoulders of giants, as it were, Uh um, is really, is time really well spent. You can't do it again later on. Can't like turn the Titanic once it's the Titanic. It takes a long time to make that change. Whereas when Uh you don't have any members and it's just a guy setting up a nonprofit, you can do all that stuff on the front end. Yeah. A lot to be done at this early stage. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so walk me through this, like you mentioned, the front end research, like all this, like all of this has yeah. been published. Your call for arms. Let's, you know, band together to Would make you pull a up the website. Yeah, well, let's go ahead show and pull everybody up the that's watching on video this lovely website that <laughs> and I love to, as we go through it, is like talk us through uh your, you know, what's your immediate goals with this too of you have it out there. So what are you, you know, like, what are you going to do with yeah. all this, yeah. this great uh, foundation? So this is the website, petfoodconsumerrightscouncil.org. You can see we've got this lovely, uh, we think it's a pretty lovely and apt little slogan or motto or whatever uh, mission statement at the very top of the website. You take care of them. We take care of you. And that's a synopsis of what we hope the thing will do. It's an animal welfare organization. Absolutely. But it's one that doesn't work in the way that like the kind of core definition of animal welfare is like most animal welfare organizations are like there are these animals that nobody is taking care of at all. Mm -hmm. And we've in order to make improve their welfare, we've got to stand up for them. We've got to be the ones that take care of them. And whether that's shelter animals or endangered species, what have you. Okay, nobody's taking care of them. We need to put our money towards doing that. Companion animals, dogs and cats, are somewhat different than that, at least the ones that have a guardian, human pet owner that live at homes with people. For them, they've got people that are looking out for their welfare. That hurricane that you just may have heard was like one St. Bernard <laughs> just shaking its jaws. Just one, not even both of them yet. <laughs> and, and, and so if you're a companion animal, we think the best way to improve the animal's welfare, its health, is to help the very invested pet owner that loves that animal, that is putting money towards it, do the best things that they can do with that money, that time, that effort. They want to do it already. They've got the resources to do it. And if we can give them the right tools that they may need to make good decisions about how they deploy those resources, we can make life better for those mm-hmm. animals. So it's again, it's you take care of them, meaning pet owners take care of their pets, we take care of you, meaning we take care of pet owners. Um, but anyway, this is the website. You can learn all about what we're trying to do um, by going to petfoodconsumerrightscouncil.org. Uh, but what you'll see is basically a, a, 
a long-winded way of describing the, the function that I already highlighted, which is that mm-hmm. we aggregate money from individual pet owners and we use that money to provide grants for projects, issues that those people care about. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, you can, from the website as well, drill down deeper into the two ways that we've set it up so that companies and people like me can't influence its operations. Mm-hmm. The first of them, like I said before, has to do with governance. So you, you find a, there's a tab on the website about governance. And this is uh, essentially the same information that you'll find on Morris's uh, website. You'll find things like the certificate of work incorporation that shows where the thing was made, the bylaws, which are like the equivalent of the, con- if this was a, a website for the United States, the bylaws would be like the constitution. This is the foundational document that describes what this entity right. is and how it functions. Okay. So having the bylaws available there isn't some like radical thing. You can do this. We did the same thing. We we're doing our research on Morris. But what's radical is what rules the bylaws set forth. Those are very different from how Morris operates. And they enshrine the kind of specific governance and financial stuff that I'll highlight. So we'll start with the governance side. Remember, I mentioned before that the way that nonprofits are governed at the highest level is by the board, board of trustees. Okay. And in Morris's case, two problems arose as we see the world. Number one, you got people on the board that clearly have conflicts of interest to the uh, to, to powerful folks who whose interests are going to be somewhat different than the constituency they're supposed to serve. So what we have is we have a very robust conflict of interest policy that you can read also on the website. Basically, what that says is that if you want to run for the board, you've got to complete this big conflicts of interest disclosure, and it's going to be published to everyone that's making decisions on who's on the board. They're all going to get a right to look at it and go, oh, Dan Shuloff is the founder of Keto Natural Pet Foods, the CEO of Keto Natural Pet Foods. We can't put this guy on the board. He's going to do he's just going to use this as a tool of that organization. And we don't like it. So that's one thing that makes it uh, somewhat different from Morris right off the bat. So we've got this very robust conflict of interest policy that requires board and executive level folks to tell us what any potential conflicts they have. But more importantly, how people are elected to the board is different. Our organization is board election entirely by members, one member, one vote, okay? And anyone that is listening to this episode right now that is a pet owner is eligible to be a member of the Pet Food Consumer Rights Council. It's like a union. It's like if you want to be a part of this, you pay dues. There's $10 a month, 10 bucks a month. You get to be a voting member and your vote counts the same as my vote and anybody else that's a member of the organization. It's not like Morris where the board is elected by the board, where that small group of people makes decisions on who's going to be on the board, regardless of who gives the organization money, they're the final decision makers. That's not how it works here. How it works here is like a functioning democracy. We have X number of members. Let's say we have 100 members at the time we're doing our annual or quarterly board of directors decision-making work. They get to review the conflicts of interest disclosures from anyone that's running for the Mm -hmm. board. And they get to vote and decide who's going to be on the board. So if you say it's too risky to put a guy like Dan Shuloff on the board, I'm not on the board. I don't get to control it from a governance level. 
That's really different. It's really revolutionary. We think it should be the norm. We think it should be how nonprofits are run, but it's rare in this day and age. And so again, that's why it's like, you can kind of, if you're listening to this, you're like, these people are onto the right thing. I want to support this organization. Thank you so much. We really love it. But if you do that, you can do, you can be supportive in two ways. One is mm-hmm. a standalone donation. You can just go to the website, be like, I'm going to give them 20 bucks. Right. No. The other is you can join, you can become a member and then it's more money because it's a consistent, you've got to give your small 10 bucks a month, you know, 30 cents a day to the organization, but you get the right to vote. You get like a certain amount of like members only stuff, but that's like not the real attraction. The attraction is you've got a voice. You've got a right to control the organization. We're not talking about a big obligation. You're not signing up to like run the thing, but you have the right. You have no obligation to do anything. But anytime you want, you're going to get notice of when we're holding new elections. You're going to get to review all the materials that everybody that's voting gets to review. And you're going to get to cast your vote. And your vote counts as much. It's not the case that everybody uh, is going to be gets as many votes as dollars they give. That's not how it works. Somebody gives $1,000, which is the most we'll accept. And we'll get to that in a second. They have the exact same uh, number of votes, which is to say one as somebody that gives $10. You all count for one. It's all the same. It's a rule by true rule by majority. Okay. Um, The second thing that we do different in order to structure this thing differently pertains to financial uh, contributions. We, number one, and most importantly, don't accept more than $1,000 per year per individual period. There will never be on our tax filing, a list of the rich folks who contributed, like the one we went through before on Hill. Mm-hmm. Because there's, we'll never accept a donation that's large enough to trigger that. The most you can give as an individual is $1,000 per year. That's modeled on something. It's like there, there was a time when that was just kind of, you, that would be like madness for a nonprofit because like the technological <laughs> resources didn't exist. You just like couldn't feasibly just mm-hmm. money from its small individuals because the whole logistical operation of like taking all that money in was just so much more laborious than just getting one million dollar check and okay we're good to go mm-hmm. this day and age like you have political candidates like this this is again a nice there's a nice analog here to the operation of political figures some political candidates in this day and age don't disclose their funding sources and are taking huge financial donations from folks who uh, want them to be elected. So because they think those people will serve their interests. You have what are called dark money contributions or contributions, big checks. And, and then at the end of the day, in the way that we described before, you end up having an outsized influence with that person, because you can always say, I'm not going to give you any more money if you're going to not serve my interest. Oh, okay. You got a big, but in this day and age with the internet being what it is and the financial system being what it is, it's totally viable for someone like now, regardless of what your political leanings are, someone like Bernie Sanders mm-hmm. and say, I will not, I pledge to you. I will not. And you're going to be able to verify it. I won't take money from lar- any large donation, small donations only. Mm-hmm. and adopted that practice and we baked it into the bylaws of the PCRC. You cannot donate more than a thousand dollars a year. So no person, once this thing is up and operating at some degree of scale, 
there's not the person that gives the most money to the organization is just not going to be that different from the person that gives the least. You're like, if we lose any one individual because their condition of support isn't being met, it's not the end of the world. We don't lose half of our money just because six people walked away. Mm-hmm. Okay? And that's baked into the bylaws. The only way it would ever change in the <clears throat> would be if all the members got together and voted to elect a new board that would support revising the bylaws so that we would change that. And there's that that ain't happening. That's obviously a very important part of why this thing works. That's not getting changed. So $1,000 per year is the cap on it. Um, and then secondly, somewhat less importantly, because you can imagine, unfortunately, that unscrupulous people could take advantage of this. But we've got conditions baked into our bylaws and how our like website and donation infrastructure works that says we're not taking any donations from you unless you swear to us that, number one, you're acting in your individual capacity, uh-huh. not as a representative of a company. So the Keto Natural Pet Foods corporate credit card doesn't work here. There's only individual donations. And you got to certify. You've got to say, by checking this box, I agree that I'm an individual pet owner. I'm not a corporation um, or any other kind of work. Individual pet owners only. A little bit of static coming through. Hold on. (laughs) It's getting so excited because you're talking about money. (laughs) Okay. Is that better? Yeah. Okay. Um, And so that you can see it all outlined there. Um, You have to be an individual pet owner to give Mm -hmm. because we want to do everything that we can to ensure that the operation of this thing is only about protecting the interests of individual pet owners. Um, So, yeah, those are the two big key ways that foundationally, structurally, organizationally, legally, we created this thing to have true responsibility Mm -hmm. to pet owners and not just present itself as being that way. Yeah, Um, absolutely. So you're going to get, obviously, you have to have a starting, like you're out of the gates, you're trying to get, uh, collect all the members, get all these uh, new members to kind of join in and develop your board from there. What, what is really in your mind the first step that should be this first phase of PCRC? Like what it's is a member the, drive? It's yeah. building up the membership role. Like, I mean, yeah. basically the role of a founder, like what role I have in this thing is like building the airplane. Right. Basically, okay. I built the airplane. Um, I am not going to be the one flying the airplane. Once it takes off, I'm not controlling it. I'm Boeing or whatever. I built the plane. Right. I don't get to tell you where the flight goes. What we're doing now, now it exists. The plane, I built the plane. The plane exists. Right now, we're trying to pick up speed down the runway. In order to fly to any destination, we've got to achieve a certain level of speed so that we can have liftoff and we can fly to one destination or another. And in order to do that, we need to build up our role of members. Yeah. So all we're doing right now is going out, trying to raise awareness, trying to boost our member roles. Please, if you like this, if you're listening to this, you hear this, we need you. This doesn't work unless somebody, unless enough people get behind it to get the airplane off the ground and fly it where we want to go. Um, in this like interstitial period, it's me doing this kind of stuff. It's publicizing it. It's like trying to get money into it. 
there's no use of funds until we've got our initial board of directors elected by our members so that there's no risk that I'm going to just take all the money and use it in this startup period for projects that I like. No money will get deployed on and no grant will be given until we get this thing up and running and we elect the board of directors that can make these decisions um, with member support. So really, that's it. It's like we've got a period between now, 90 day. OK, mm -hmm. it's like we've got to get it in now, make it happen now so we can get this thing up and moving. Once that's once we have a like critical mass, once we're going fast enough down the runway, the second project is to elect our first slate of directors. And that involves the conflicts of interest policy that we highlighted mm -hmm. before. Get those people in place and we can start operating. We can start doing things that move the needle for Petona. Survey. Yeah, absolutely. Going through that list of, you know, like you said, like the grants and all of those d deeper level initiatives, but you have yeah. to have your <laughs> your foundational uh, part to it uh, as well. So, um, yeah, I, I think of it often like whenever I do hear you kind of rehash this mission statement, it reminds me, I can't think of the phrase exactly, but it's like a chorus of a thousand equal voices. And it is that where it's not tiered in any way, like a corporation can't basically buy its way into bias. Everybody has a vote, like it's a very equal democratized setup. And it's different, like you have to kind of think about it for a second. And then you're like, oh, like, that's cool. Like, <laughs> I can vote into issues or understand who's on the board that's kind of guiding the ship. So it's a it's a very transparent way of doing it, which yep. is great. <laughs> but it's like, in order to, um, in order for that transparency to mean anything, mm -hmm. you've got to be willing to, like, engage with it. You know what I mean? Like, I think that a big part of the reason why this needs to exist at all is because, in this day and age, marketing your organization is about basically appealing to people that aren't willing to like take the time to learn about it. High level, punch you in the face type stuff about doesn't this feel bad? Don't you want to support this cause? And then you're in. You're not going to spend a significant amount of time doing your diligence on whether this is a thing I really want to support or not. Yeah. Our thing doesn't work. It won't work that way. If your only level, like just the headline already got written, you know, like somebody was, we yeah. did a press release for it. When I got, I tried to get it off the ground by giving Tuesday, which is like the Tuesday after black Friday. Cause I thought that would be a good time to get. So we did one press release around it and I blasted it out by email telling folks, you know, we didn't have any long narrative like this about it, but it was like, this thing is operational. Right. We think you should support it. And I immediately got a really nasty email from somebody who, publishes a blog about pet food consumer stuff. And she said, what the hell are you doing? I'm paraphrasing. What the hell are you doing? You're, how can you say you're making a consumer organization when you are an industry person? And I said that, like I said earlier on the show, that makes total sense. That's exactly a kind of criticism that I would have of this. Let me explain to you why uh -huh. I think it, and here's why we've designed it in a way where that criticism doesn't end up holding water, why it's not going to impact this, like the loyalty of this organization. And what that person did was didn't engage. She wrote back and said, I don't trust you. I don't, there's nothing you could explain to me that would change my perspective. Huh. Okay. 
And then she went out and put an article on her website that says like, could this guy be trusted or something like that? I was like, I let me answer your questions about it. Let me explain how it's like, nope, not going to give you the opportunity. It felt hmm. super unfair, but it is what it is. It's like that some people are going to do that. And that's sort of the challenge that we're up against is like in order to like make a real educated determination if this is something you want to support or not, there's transparency. But you have to be able to engage with transparency. If what you're doing is a headline level, pet food industry guy creates consumer nonprofit. Mm -hmm. Okay. You're not supporting that, obviously. You right. have to get, so like the things people, if you're, again, if you're drinking the Kool-Aid, if you're listening to this and you're like, yeah, this makes a lot of sense to me too. This is a good thing for pet food world. Um, you can make a donation, you yep. can join as a member. And if you want, you can help to raise awareness. You can, you can share this with people on your end, whether they're, you know, news and information sources that you respect and you like, or whether they're just your personal and professional circle that you can just share it with. Right. You got to make it clear to those people. Like you got to engage with this level of like you got to take advantage of the transparency that exists here. You mm -hmm. ask the tough questions, ask the questions that you want, you think will reveal if you think that this is all you don't trust this. You're like, oh, this guy is just lying through his teeth. Exp like come talk to us, engage mm -hmm. with us. Let us try to explain to you why we legitimately think you have nothing um, to worry about. But. Yeah, I mean, there and there's also uh, you put a contact us form right on the PCRC's website. Like, there's a lot of channels to question things to to ask further clarification. Um, certainly, to kind of dig further. Obviously, you can reach out to the podcast uh, directly, um, and we'll help answer those questions. We might do a part two if there's a lot of questions. But yeah, I mean, I it's mean, like, it's, I'm not. I, one thing I'm a big believer in is that one thing you can a good like back of envelope rule of thumb way that you can tell whether somebody is worthy of your trust or not mm -hmm. is how willing they are to engage. How willing are they going to uh, respond to your questions at all? If they're going to respond to them, are they going to get take your questions, leave for two days and provide a written response, but not give you any follow up? Or are they going to answer your questions live on the air? Are they going to have a conversation with you? Are they willing to appear on your terms? I believe that stuff has a huge significance. It matters a lot to me. I can tell, like if you have, um, I don't know, folks in the scientific community that want to put out something that, I don't know, they, want, they think advances some cause, but then they mm -hmm. don't answer questions about it. They don't engage in debate with you. They don't make themselves available. They don't take on that responsibility that indicates something to me. That means to me that that person is trying to limit what they're willing to talk about. We're not willing, there's no like off limit subjects here. And I like to think that as a, a pet food industry executive, I do a good job within the grand scheme of other pet food industry executives of making myself available. This is a podcast where you can reach out and talk to us. Social media, I am not a hidden figure. I'm not an anonymous account on Twitter, okay? That, like, I am a, the, the, like, I, I'd encourage you to go look for other folks like this and try to see if you yeah. can find, if you can have a, a, like, engagement with the CEO of whoever you buy your pet food from. <laughs> it doesn't always work like that. But I think yeah. it's a really important thing in order to develop trust from folks. It's what should be the norm, regardless of whether it is the norm. And so I, I hope 
that and if there's anything that we could do to be more transparent make ourselves more available if we're, we're not meeting that standard mm -hmm. let's hear about it because that's I'm, I'm legitimately open to like doing everything i can to communicate about this i don't think there's anything anyone can ask me that's not that we don't have what we feel like is a good you know answer to mm -hmm. like there's a, this is this is the I, we did this to the best of our ability and if you've got something I just, I'm just griping now as we approach an hour. So if everybody wants to just like leave and make your donation, whatever, <laughs> fine. But like that came up, you know, when this person that I'm describing reached out, she was like, you didn't even in your press release say that you're a pet food executive. That's a problem. Like that's you hot. You're hiding it. And I was mm -hmm. like, well, look, the only people I sent this to, the only people who got this all know me because they know keto natural pet foods. They're subscribers to the keto natural pet foods blog, or they are subscribers to this show's email distribution list. There's not a person that was out there that didn't get that already, but she was right in the press release itself. It didn't say Dan, it said entrepreneur, but it didn't say like keto natural right. pet food mm -hmm. CEO that day. I went out and changed and made the website super clear, put up this big, you can read it, go to the website, go to like our story. I think it says, mm -hmm. see like this, everything I've basically said on this show about where I come from, why I think that this nonprofit is good for the pet food industry and right. for keto natural pet foods, if it serves its purpose all on there. And so it's like, look, I'm reacting to the exact thing you brought up. And then she still went and wrote the article to say like, he didn't, he didn't put the, his name is uh, his company in the original press release. But by the time I wrote this uh, is like in parentheses, by the time I wrote this, that may have been changed. It was just like, so it felt so unfair. It felt yeah. It, it's hard putting things out in the world of like what kind of skepticism we're going to receive and like what point they're going to do be skeptical on. So um, yeah, it's, it's, you're making changes to make it even more transparent. And like you said, you're just here to build the plane. Like you're just here to you get, don't it, get off to fly the it You know what I mean? Like the people who are the framers of the constitution <laughs> didn't have a, they weren't like, Oh yes, we're setting up this organization so that right. we all get to be president forever after. It's like, yeah. no, there is a democratic process that puts you in place. Right. And I would question, frankly, the person that wrote that article about me, people should mm -hmm. maybe try to decide whether they, want to look at the governance regarding her organization and whether it's subject to member vote or not. Yeah. It's really <laughs> for me. I yeah. hope by the end of this episode, you understand like how to look at a structure of a nonprofit too, yeah. and to be able to ask these questions of everyone you're involved with too. So, <laughs> but uh, yes, as always, like anything show notes, we all make sure to link everything to the website that Dan mentioned, but yes, petfoodconsumerrightscouncil.org. Make sure you do .org, not .com, and you'll get all the, everything's just laid out very nicely. So you should be able to navigate, uh, investigate, <laughs> participate, whatever. Oh, uh, you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> whatever the trifecta uh, you choose. But yes, it, it's just, we're opening this. This is the 101 spiel on yeah. uh, Dan's new nonprofit. So thank you for listening. Yeah. Um, I hope you're having a great 2023 uh, future, <laughs> future Jen and future Dan. Yeah. <laughs> so, but thank you again for listening. And yeah, again, you, thank you for all of your support last year on the podcast. So we truly appreciate uh, to keep this going. So thank you so much. See you next time. Okay. Bye everybody. Thanks, Jen.